0: Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter, ideas shape markets, ideas can change the world. Nothing changes the world more than the recognition that this life is temporary. And how you live it, live it abundantly, is probably the question we all should be asking. So when I run across life expressions that seem to embrace that abundance principle, that living with a sense of abundance and poetry and motion, I, I just I just glob onto them. And um, the other day on LinkedIn, there was an article uh, sent to me by somebody who's connected to me on LinkedIn, and the title of it. Um, The title of it was just just immediately attracted to me. And I later learned the woman who had written the article was good. You probably can contract her at writing headlines. No wonder she got me to read this. But the article was, my dad decided it was time to die. That's how it starts. Here's how I helped him do it the way he wanted. Now, I have aging parents. I've had a number of parents that have died and I just glommed onto that article and read it and cried, because it was such a beautiful story. So I wanted to track her down, Michelle Stacy, who is the editor in chief of a, a, a major magazine and has been a writer all her life. Michelle, great having you on the Great Conversation.
1: It's wonderful to be here.
0: I uh. I gotta tell you, I, I once again, as I said to you before we uh, put on the recording, I'm I'm staring at you right now, but it's a picture of you and your father about six years ago. Tell tell me tell me about that picture. What's what's sitting in front of you?
1: My father's favorite drink is sitting in front of us. He was a um really a master of the martini, and it was um, the evening was not complete for him without a martini. And it was his 80th birthday. And I love that picture because you really get a sense of um, of who he was. He, he looks kind of impish in that picture. Um, and you get a sense of our relationship, which was very close. Um, and at that time, he was still living the kind of life he wanted to live. Um, Although he kept telling me he was slowing down, he didn't really seem to me to be slowing down. And he could do his favorite things, which were long walks around Chicago, which is where he grew up um, and moved away and then came back to retire. Walking around the city, reading voraciously, Um, The New Yorker, The Nation, the New York Review of Books, um, books from his huge library, having a martini at at night, going out to dinner, uh, great conversation, great music. And uh, what I write about is when he got to a point where he couldn't do any of those things and um he was not willing to just be, to just, you know, sit in a chair, couldn't focus on reading anymore, couldn't even drink his martinis, um, couldn't walk comfortably around the city. And he called me up and told me, you know, the end is near. He literally said the end is near. Um, And I went out to see him and I, I didn't believe it. You know, you don't want to believe that your parents are going to die. You don't want to believe that you're going to die. But he was having trouble breathing and he really was, he was fading away and it was so much a part of his personality that he, he wanted to get it done, you know, um, and he also he saw it as an adventure. I mean, he literally used words like, "I'm going to be going on a journey that nobody knows about." You know, nobody comes back and and tells us what it was like. And it was it was awe inspiring to me that that he he was he, there was no fear there um he he just wanted to fade away
0: well that um so what i take away from that i wish i could have met the man a voracious reader of course it every time you talk about his walks his voracious attention if you will to life and uh, as the great literature the great plays the great music a man who embraces life so mm-hmm. i can just imagine you taking that very seriously cuz you know he embraced life he he wasn't he wasn't uh a guy who left life cuz it was no longer working he left life to embrace another journey that's what it sounds like it, he 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 yes he wanted to yeah. still go on walks yes he still wanted to read yes he still wanted to breathe correctly but, right. but am I right? Was he yes. going? Hey, listen, Michelle. This is the time. This is a, this is going to be a great journey.
1: Yeah, and and it was, his mind was was totally intact, mm-hmm. um, but his body was failing him, mm-hmm. and um, he believed very strongly. Uh, uh, how to put this against the idea that. Uh, Some people have called the American way of death, which is to fight it tooth and nail, you know, and he had a friend who was dying of cancer and, and it was his oldest friend in the world. And he was, you know, sad to be losing this friend, but he was also sad that his friend was fighting it so hard, Um, you know, trying every last uh treatment even despite you know painful side effects and and clinging clinging to a life that that his friend couldn't live in the way that he wanted and and my father really didn't believe in that um he believed in death with dignity and um It's funny, the response that I got, a lot of people responded to this piece, both on Huffington Post, which is where it was originally published, and then it was picked up by Yahoo News. And uh, a lot of people responded with their own stories about either themselves getting older or their parents and their experience with hospice, which we used to help my dad, um, but a lot of people—not a lot of people—most people responded that way. But a few people responded as if we had administered a fatal dose to my my father. And by we, I mean me and my stepmother. We we were with him together through this process, and um, I think those are a real misunderstanding of what hospice is and what end of life care is, Um, it's all about letting nature do its thing, and it's not about curing or trying to cure something that's incurable, but it's about making the person comfortable while their body shuts down, so morphine is a part of that, and I realized that a lot of people don't understand morphine, and I didn't understand it until my mother went into hospice. And morphine is not just a pain reliever, it also helps with breathing. In fact, it's more often used with breathing problems. And when I saw my father struggling to breathe, I mean, that's the worst feeling in the world. Mm. And hospice came in and left us with, you know, all of these oral syringes. And every four hours, if he was having trouble breathing, he would get a dose of this and he still maintained his, it didn't just knock him out. It just made him comfortable. And I think there's, there's so much education, honestly, that, that should go on about what can the end of life look like? My dad wanted to be in his apartment looking out on this beautiful cityscape and on Lake Michigan. He hated hospitals he didn't want to be in a hospital, and um, it's funny. I was in a bookstore the other day, and I was in in a section that was about health and diet and you know living healthfully. And there was this book, and literally the title of this book was "How Not to Die," <laughs> and I thought, wow, that really says kind of the American viewpoint. But we're all going to die. We're all going to die and it's it's not a matter of avoiding it. it's a matter of of um in a way embracing it
0: what a momentum or he says embrace the fact you're going to die so it informs and infuses
1: your present exactly I mean that's that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I feel like if we didn't have death, if we didn't, it's like a deadline, right? (laughs) Funny how the word dead is in the word deadline. Um, If we didn't have a deadline, if we could just go on and on, it's almost like the deadline gives everything else, not just urgency, but, but meaning and perspective. You know, I I'm in my early sixties and I can look at my life and say, well, you know, if I'm lucky, I have another quarter of my life to go. And those thoughts used to frighten me. And I have to say, going through this with my father, um, partly it was his own lack of fear, but it took away a lot of the fear that I had had before of dying, because it was so natural, you know, it, it was so clearly a natural process. And the fact that, that he wasn't afraid and he, he talked about how he thought about it and how he had loved this movie about Toulouse-Lautrec and at uh, the, the uh, French painter and um, in, in the movie as, as Lautrec is dying, all of these visions kind of ghosts of his of his life that he's led come and gather around him to say goodbye and uh that's how my dad saw it you know he he and he had visitors who came to say goodbye and they knew they were saying goodbye and it was uh it was truly a beautiful thing um and I I miss him terribly and I miss that I can't talk to him anymore but while this was going on I I was compelled to write about it even over this period where he was dying because it felt important and it felt like a point of view that I wish more people had I think there would be more joy in the world and less fear if more people looked on it the way my father did. I
0: used to uh I used to say, Michelle, that fear must be the original sin because it leads to so many terrible things.
1: <laughs> it does. It does. It and it shuts you down, yes. you know. And and what he seemed towards the end is the way he had always seemed open. You know, he was open to this. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't fighting it. And when the the hospice person came in, I had to convince him to do hospice because he, like many people, I think, didn't really understand what it is. And he still saw it as a kind of prolonging. You know, anything that was medical um, seemed to him prolonging. And he didn't believe in doing that. And I kept saying, no, dad, it's about not suffering physically while your body does this natural thing. So the hospice consultant came in and, uh, and spoke with him and and all of us, me and, and my stepmother as well. And she explained to him, we're not trying to, this process is not about trying to cure you. It's about making you comfortable while nature takes it, its course. And he was, he was so happy And she said to him, you know, I've been doing this for years and you are the happiest patient I've ever talked to because that's what he wanted. He didn't want to stop this process from happening. And uh, every day that he lived in hospice, which was only about maybe nine or 10 days tops, we did wonderful things. We watched old movies he read poetry aloud, uh, friends and family came to visit him, um, you know, and it was juxtaposed with the, the pain of dying. I mean, there's, it's, it, it, you can't get around the fact that it's, it's kind of awful when you can't get out of bed to go to the bathroom, you know, but he just kind of took it in stride. It was awe-inspiring. Well, you, um, uh...
0: You write about this one time when he is sitting up in bed and decides to read, and it was poignant for me because the focus of the whole article is you and him, and uh, and suddenly, and suddenly we get this other focus of this hospital assistant listening to him reading and you tell the story there was something that made you bring this up what was going on in that hospice worker's facial expressions mm-hmm. uh, around that around that period of time
1: yeah i might have used the word transfixed right. um she was a young caribbean woman she was um a hospice aide and she was studying for her nursing degree and uh a young woman with Young children at home. And I could tell that poetry was not something that had really been in her life. You know, um, she had been focused on studying healthcare. And my father read aloud for maybe 45 minutes to an hour. And it astonished me because he was quite weak at that time, but he read beautifully. And he read Keats' uh, Ode to a Nightingale. And he read um, Dylan Thomas's Fern Hill, his his old favorites, um, and a couple of Yeats poems among school children. And she, he got done with this. He finally, you know, got tuckered out. And she took out her little notepad and she said, what were the names of those poets? I want to look those up. And it was like he had opened this door for her, you know, and it was one of the things he did in his last days on earth. And I mean, that is life, you know, she, he changed her life in this small way, or maybe not small way, as he was on his way out. And it was just a beautiful moment.
0: And that right there, um, right there proves your point. You know, we used to think that in preparing in leading a life that is preparing for death we will lead financial legacy we'll leave uh, stories we'll lead uh, genealogical trees and stories uh, but what we don't re- realize is the unseen the stuff that won't be stored in libraries or anything else are the seeds that have been planted in others Uh, as you live your life and he obviously planted seeds in this young Caribbean studying a nursing degree.
1: Right and you know uh, it's interesting my daughter who is in her early 30s um, taught me something a few years ago when and I, I would give this as a as a piece of advice to anyone who has older people in their lives although you can do it really at any age. My daughter started for um, Mother's Day and for my birthday, writing a card to me and not just like, Happy Mother's Day, Mom, thanks for everything. But she would write out what I had meant to her, what I had taught her. Um, You know, she she would write this whole thing about how I had affected her life. And I started doing that with my father um, the last few years of his life. And it it was almost like giving someone a eulogy that they can hear before they're gone. I told him how he had, um, how I treasured the fact that he had introduced me to, um, you know, the Great American Songbook and to, Jane Austen and to Anthony Trollope and how his his love of life and, and adventure had given me um courage and how his faith in me had, had given me courage. And it's I could see the effect on him, you know. It it makes people realize what they're doing here, you know, how they're affecting other people. And the saddest thing is that my dad can't read this piece that I wrote because I wrote it after he died. But so anything you can do to to kind of give people eulogies years before they go, you know, it's what life is about.
0: So funny uh, you say that. I um, I had a client for many years, and I helped him build his company, his life again, personal, professional, corporate value. And ultimately, it led to a strategic event um, that we had planned for, for quite some time. That is, we knew it would change his life monetarily, but we wanted it to be a natural thing instead of an unnatural thing, something that fed his life, didn't place more burden on it like wealth can. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few weeks back, Michelle... His family contacted me and they wanted to throw a retirement party and invite all his friends. And I got him on the phone. I go, What do you want to have happen at this party? He goes, I want to profile them and their stories that intersected with mine. And I just thought that was so beautiful. And I go, You realize, you realize this is your funeral before funeral. And he laughed and I go, no, really, it's a good thing.
1: Yeah, it is a good thing. And living funerals, I think, is a great, a great concept Um, because it's like we save up all that good stuff, you know, um, that we should be expressing. Yes, yes.
0: So let's end with this. Um, What was your dad like? growing up we know what he was like in his 80s and especially during those last few weeks with him but what was he like to you growing up
1: well he was kind of a madcap in a way um he he and my mother uh got married in the late 50s when people were getting married so young, my mother was 19, my father was 20. Um, And then they had kids, they had my sister, and then me just boom, boom. So there they were in their early 20s, with two young kids. And um, yeah, you know, I think it had a lot of challenges. But it's kind of the opposite of what people are doing now, where they're having kids in their late 30s, you know, um, they it's like we all were kids together, you know, and um we lived in Hawaii for a couple of years. Uh, when I was too young to remember, sadly. I think it was from when I was about one to three, but my dad was teaching at the university. Hawaii had just become a state a couple of years before that. And um, you know, it it was quite an adventurous. Thing to do. Um, and then as I got older, my dad was the kind of father who got much more interested in their kids when they weren't babies anymore, you know, and when they could start talking and reading. And um, so by the time I was like grade school age, we really started to engage a lot more. And my parents were so young and so young looking that sometimes people would see us together and think, literally think they were our older siblings. Um, and one thing that we all did together that was just amazing, the four of us, was that um, for three summers in a row, my dad quit his job in 1968 and went freelance. He was a writer as well. And we spent months on the road. We drove from Chicago to California. We drove up the coast and into Canada. We drove back through Montana, um, camping the whole way. And, and then we went on to do that for two more summers. And so he did have a great, a great sense of adventure um and uh, I'll also, I'll just add this one last story because it it was so much him, uh, He came home from work one day uh, when I was, oh, gosh, I don't know, maybe 10 or something. And he had this little 45 record. Remember those? (laughs) And he, you know, he was this businessman type, but he comes in with this record and he puts it on. He says, you've got to listen to this. This is the most beautiful thing. And it was the Beatles. Hey, Jude. (laughs) Oh, And, you know, I just felt very lucky to have parents, both my parents, like this. They were very hooked into what was going on. You know, my friends considered them kind of hippies because my friend's parents were buying big furniture. You know, we kind of sat on the floor on pillows. Uh, So it was an adventure. It was an adventure with him.
0: I, I, I if you can give me some allowance i'd like to read that last two paragraphs from fern hill would you like oh
1: yes i love that yes
0: nothing i cared in the lamb white days that time would take me up to the swallow throng loft by the shadow of my hand in the moon that is always rising nor that, riding to sleep, I should hear him fly with the high fields and wake to the farm forever fled from the childless land. Oh, as I was young and easy in the mercy of his means, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. It gets
1: me every time.
0: That was your father. He sang in his chains like the sea. Michelle, yes. Stacy, this has been a great conversation.
1: Thank it's you. It's so been much. great talking with you.